0: How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 138. Seven. Seven. Oh, no. Oh, it's about time I that's messed a, one up. That's all right. To be honest, it's been a while since we've been in the room doing a podcast.
1: That's true. Last week's episode with Ricky, we did Fallen Angels. That was that was actually closer to two weeks ago than
0: it was one week ago. So. Exactly. So it's yeah. been a couple of weeks. It's kind of tough to streamline uh, what episode it is so yeah but that's all right We're we'll getting there we're almost at 150 I that's, know. that's insane it goes, by, it goes by quickly
1: yeah we've done more episodes of the show since covid started than before covid started
0: that is really
1: <laughs>
0: kind of a little depressing oh, um man mainly because of the yeah sort of the world we're uh, we're talking about it today off off the air of the show how uh how how much this whole part has changed we we're actually talking about our earlier episodes mm. when we were kind of to some extent downplaying. Um, yeah,
1: the, ep- is, the difference between episode 65 and 66 were
0: <laughs> interesting,
1: to say yeah, the least. because that yeah. was...
0: So what happened was, I mean, I think we talked about it when we did those episodes. Yeah, of I course. Mean, we're now talking like 60 episodes ago. Um, I was planning on going away, so we did like four or five yeah, pre-recordings. Pre-reco- full, full yeah. So in that month, it was just lucky because we went into lockdown, our first ever lockdown at that point. And, yeah. Um. Had the four episodes all good to go, so... Yeah, so um, we didn't have
1: to, to see each other for those four weeks yeah, to do any shows, and so, by the time that we had to get up to date, we were allowed to be in the same room again at least. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I mean, so, since then, we've only had to do one episode. Yeah. Uh, the entire remote. show, one remote episode. Gallipoli! So, there you go. Um, and that still good. went, that went fine. Yeah, so, that was a great discussion. Um, but we always like being in the room together. So, absolutely here we are um how are you jake
1: <laughs> yeah not bad it's it's been a crazy couple of weeks and um got some stuff to talk about in the career section which is exciting it is some,
0: fantastic
1: some stuff to talk about in the what we've been watching the last week's section you know what Zeke? we're gonna have stuff to just talk about that's yes, great well,
0: you hope, <laughs> hope you'd have stuff to talk about in the podcast. <laughs> Speaking of stuff to talk about, Jake... Yeah. Have you got me a film trivia fact for the film of the week?
1: I do. So, for the film Annette, which we just saw, like, we walked out maybe 30 minutes ago. Yes. This is much like last week. It's going to be a very fresh take on the film. We thought. I thought it was interesting that, and you made the the observation, that uh, Howard from the Big Bang Theory, you don't really see him a lot in in a lot of things, and, and that you were kind of surprised or taken back to actually see him on the big screen, doing some actual like real... True, honest performing that yeah. you know—you wouldn't otherwise see much on The Big Bang Theory, I don't imagine. But it's interesting to find out how eager he was in that he actually became a French citizen and learned the language uh, as the production needed more EU citizens to get funding uh, in their cast, or EU citizens in the cast to get funding. So he really went above and beyond to do that, which I respect. I mad respect that. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's, um, it's interesting because... Uh, as someone who's not watched too much of the Big Bang Theory mm. Past sort of my more juvenile years And only watched it sporadically on television Right um, Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to see those guys obviously branch Jim Parsons has been quite a few things Post Big Bang Theory life And, and yeah. they all have retrospectively gone certain ways But yeah, it is always nice to see sort of a prominent TV actor In a actual serious role and a performative role
1: Yeah, that. a thousand percent
0: so, well, what,
1: What's your fact, Zeke? Give me, give me your fact.
0: Um, we've got quite a few that we could go with here, but I think the, the most important thing is this is uh, uh, Leos uh, uh, Leo f um, English-language film debut. Ah, uh, okay. So that's, that's his, his first, first English film.
1: Yeah, I'm not familiar with any of the other films he's
0: written or directed. But, yeah, um... so we're getting a real first. Uh, and then Adam Driver smoked at the premiere. That would be my oh, other... Yeah. <laughs> According
1: um, to Letterboxd. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. alleged,
0: but I'm going to buy that. Yeah, I'm sure, sure that's true.
1: Um, Why else would they give the film five stars if, if not that was a true story?
0: Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, that's 100% true.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, to tease our thoughts in the film, Zeke, this film's obviously not on the poster behind you, 1,100 films you must watch before you die. Um, of course, it came out too recently, but Zeke should it be on the poster.
0: No. No? No. No. I, no, I, I, I can't will dive disagree. in more. Yeah, yeah. That later in the show. But, yeah, we got some interesting interesting hot takes on that film. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get there, Jake, we've got to talk about what we've watched in the last week.
1: That's true. Yeah, What well, it's kind of fortuitous that we're talking about sort of this rock opera film where music's a big part of it because the only thing I watched in the last couple of weeks, you know, I've <laughs> just been busy doing stuff, is I saw something very special, actually. So, the other night, I attended... Uh, a live, uh, screening slash performance from the Perth, uh, orchestra or symphony orchestra, I should say. Uh, they played the score live to the film Amadeus, the 1984 film from the guy who did Cuckoo's Nest, great director. He also did Man on the Moon. Um, he, uh, wow. Wow. I, this film's absolutely incredible. And I've heard like hype for it, and I knew a lot of people were really excited about it. I went with friends, um, Stephen and Blake of the show. Stephen, of course, has been on a couple of the episodes in the past, and they were huge avid fans of this film and love it to death. And I was happy to say when I attended it, I loved it as well. Thought the Mm. film was brilliant. It it, it sort of has that extra layer of hearing the music live. Say, does that elevate it? Oh, a thousand percent, it does. And like the mixing was so. This is the first time I've attended something like this. We've had stuff like Harry Potter, apparently, Back to the Future, Star Wars. Like we've had a lot of stuff here in Perth where they mm. do this, which is really cool. It's the first time I've ever actually attended, but I love the way it was mixed to, to very much complement the film because I wasn't sure how much like am I going to understand the dialogue or is it going to overpower the film? It doesn't at all. Like it, you're totally just watching the film, um, and it has subtitles just in case, which I appreciated. Uh, but the way they play the music it really does blend in so it's almost you have to like physically look down at the orchestra playing to Mm. be like oh yeah this is live which it was just cool because it just enhanced the film especially because there's so many cool moments in the film where um, either the characters are reading cheap music and the way they play non-diegetic music of how that's what they're seeing or thinking in their head is the musical track and how characters will literally have to like yell over the non-diegetic music to get their attention and like that just felt like an extra oomph with mm-hmm. the with the orchestra which i loved all that stuff but even just in terms of the film it was such it's so clearly a classic sort of on the ranks of the godfather or something that it's a story told with such conviction and like such authenticity that that yeah this is just a masterclass of film and you believe everything every performance the edit the production design it all just like plays out i especially loved so for those who don't know amadeus it's essentially a what if scenario where you have these two, you know, legendary composers back in the day. You obviously have Mozart, you have um, uh, Salieri, or Salieri, is that, uh, did I even spell that correctly? Salieri, I think it's Salieri, Um, and how they're both, you know, these classic uh, composers from late 18th century Vienna. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, what if there was a bit of a rivalry going on there? And there's nothing in the books that really says yes or no, there was a rivalry to this. Mm -hmm. They do play a little bit with real-life facts um, how the, the fact that Mozart was actually commissioned to do the Requiem track, that's true, but they play with who actually requested it in this film. So there's a bit of what-if scenarios in here, but just the way they go about that rivalry and the fact that we're taking it from the perspective of the, of the half of this rivalry that's so clearly losing and mm. so clearly has to go out of their way to make the other go insane. And I just, I loved all of those aspects of the film. I thought it was very clever. Mozart's like deterioration as a human being is just so mm. cool to watch. And and the thing I gotta give it credit for is there was a director's cut that's about three hours long. This was the two hour, forty minute version. And I remember thinking like, wow, this felt almost rushed. Like the second half felt way too fast. I was like, man, I actually want I want to see more. Which is a, a complete mm. compliment for a film like mm. this. That's such an epic Especially and, since we just got out of a two hour, twenty minute film. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that that uh that that could have certainly you know not pump the brakes on that one, you know. They definitely could have pushed the the lever forward, I guess. Um, but yeah, Amadeus. Incredible, incredible experience with the live orchestra. Um, can't wait to watch the director's cut. It's a great film. Excellent well, It's film.
0: really good to hear. Yeah. Um, I can't say I've watched all that much in terms of films. I haven't caught any new films in the last week. Um, mm. I revisited a show that you probably know about, Jake. Uh, mm. uh, I think a lot of Australians grew up with this show. And I sort of was... I was just flicking through and I was like looking for a new show to watch. And I I actually watched the pilot to The Expanse, which is a science fiction show on um, Amazon Prime. Uh, It was very slow, a lot of exposition. Apparently, it's a bit of a slow burn and it picks up. But um, I wasn't really feeling that. I was feeling something a little bit lighter, with a bit more heart, something a bit warmer and easier to consume. And I I stumbled across across on uh, Disney Plus uh, a show, My Name is Earl. Ah, very nice. It's it's interesting to talk about because a lot of, when I say that, a lot of people go, I remember that show growing up because it used to be on, you know, free to air TV here in Australia, but Mm. I think it was only the first two seasons at that point. It was very sporadic and it would obviously be like a new episode a week sort of situation. And, you know, it's funny to think growing up that we lived with the world where we could I only get one new episode a week or or two new episodes a week, and and that was enough. I still wish we had lived in that world, but Mm. our binge culture, man, binge culture. And I discovered there's four seasons, and sure enough, I'm right at the end of the first season already within about three days, so three or four days of watching so it, it's it's interesting because a lot of those actors in that show had not really done all all that much after the fact of the show they had a really mm. you know jason lee the star of the show is is very compelling and the show is it, it, I, the best way of equating it it's that logan lucky humor that hillbilly logan lucky humor mm. with the same level of heart and care like caring and that, that sort of perfect balance that Soderbergh catches so well and in Logan like and that first season they really do pull out all the stops like like i was saying to you off the air John Favreau's in an episode mm, like yeah there's some like pretty big names in that first season just for the sake of it and i find that really interesting um but it was definitely a show that uh, peaked popularity at its time and and sort of just disappeared into the ether um you know, I haven't heard anyone talk about it for years. So. Yeah, no,
1: neither. And I've never seen the show, but I know, like, I I know the the art of it or like the 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 mm. cover art of the box sets. They're so familiar because my brother had some of the mm. DVDs. Um, that's the only I always, like, really know about it. Of oh, My yeah. Name Is Earl. Yeah, it's it's
0: it's really good TV. I've I've really enjoyed the first season. It's it the whole show has a very positive um, critical rating. So I'm hoping it doesn't dip off. And maybe it was just one of the few sitcom shows that didn't overstay its welcome and yeah potentially so maybe it honestly resolved itself in a neat little bow but time will tell on that one
1: yeah exactly so you're gonna make your way through to all four Absolutely. seasons yeah, yeah that's fair enough
0: might as well started it we got through the first season yeah. pretty quickly
1: exactly and we we demonstrated today that we definitely like to stick through with uh with our viewing
0: <laughs> even when it's trying <laughs> Man, we're, just, we're just
1: teasing this so badly uh, are we you
0: know past the career section it's like obviously we don't have too much in this section of the show to talk about now um, yeah yeah so that's pretty much all we've watched in last week I mean,
1: well uh, i mean i watched the spider-man no way home trailer that's something I yeah, watched.
0: yeah i think we have to talk <laughs> we have to address this don't we um i was <laughs> we have
1: to address this don't we yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't think I was saying this off the air not to you but to you know a couple of our friends of the show yeah that I haven't seen this level of like hype exposure talking about and honestly just media repetition analyzing frames and stuff since the first force awakens trailer came out mm. when episode Seven's first trailer first teaser trailer dropped the amount of talking and discussion and and little snippets of analyzing trying to assume the plot and trying to assume i, I haven't seen that level of anal, like analyzing in any of the mcu, MCU films uh, and to this extent other than this one because every i think with the other films it's like everyone every, you know everyone we all like whenever a new one drops people are always talking about it but this is like meticulous analyzing like that people have done with this which i, I I don't think I've seen that since the Force Awakens trailer dropped. Yeah,
1: it's definitely been a while. And even to put it in perspective, uh, it's actually come out that the the No Way Home trailer is actually like the biggest trailer of all time in that it got 355 million global views in the first 24 hours. That is more than any other film trailer ever, including Avengers Endgame, which was closer to about 289 million. Okay. So the fact that this is objectively bigger and more exciting than Avengers Endgame is insane. Yeah. Insane. And if it wasn't for the restrictions and COVID and all of those elements, if this came out like in a non-COVID alternate universe, if you will, um, like much like the alternate universes of this film, uh, the, the, the financial results would be absolutely like mind blowing. It would be unfathomable. Yeah. John Fathomable.
0: <laughs> John Fav- Yeah. John. I
1: tried. I really Not tried. Bad. Not bad. Uh, cause he's in so, the movies. Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> Look, I I haven't actually... Uh, the funny thing is, I ended up almost just watching the trailer by watching other people's, like, analysing the trailer. Interesting, like, okay. Systematically put it together that way and then sat down and watched it myself. I don't like watching trailers. I mean, I'm going to get dragged to and or have to go to see this film, so... um, he dragged to.
1: I mean, look, it's funny, because, like, I'm kind of with you on this. I was just saying, like, I could not care less for... Shang-Chi that's like around the corner and um I probably I'm in the same mindset of like I'm probably just going to see it anyway whether yeah. I drag myself or someone else does but I think the difference here and like uh, I understand the difference is like you're not nostalgic about Spider-Man the way that I'm nostalgic about Spider-Man yeah um, and that I literally grew up with those original Raimi films and Spider-Man 2 has such a, a special place in my heart and like seeing Dr Octopus like on screen like it just it hits that right note for me where it's like yeah. I understand this is all a cash grab I understand this is all like you know, big over over my head politics and financial gain that Sony's doing and with Disney and all of these things. I understand that negative side to it. And I preach it a lot. I mm. do. The anti Disney stuff, all the MCU stuff. But there's like there's such a core um piece of nostalgia in here. It's Just the, the thought of like Green Goblin returning, Toby Maguire, Spider Man returning, like all of these elements. Like it's something that you just can't help but get giddy at least for me in my in my mm. example. Even though I'm a little worried about This is what my friend Keish was saying, that they revealed way too much plot in that trailer for a teaser, quote-unquote, and that they could have gotten away with promoting this film as, ah, like, here's a blog of a random New York citizen complaining about Peter Parker as Mm Spider-Man, and it's the first time we've seen this version on screen of Peter Parker being outed as Spider-Man. And, like, we talked about that in our Far From Home review because that was sort of the cliffhanger of that film. And they totally could have got away with making that the promotional material that's the focus because people they know they know all the alternative universe stuff. They know what's gonna happen. They don't need to show it all up front, but they I have think, to because well, they look might, at those, views, that, those that, views. The
0: views and and honestly they're probably getting to a point now where they're not far they're not feeling as secure mm. um with this sure thing from a money point of view. I, I think um having all of those re- restrained and restrictive marketing would you know, it would be a risky move it would be a move that would eventually pay off for the better, but right. I think they're at this weird point now where they're starting to go, oh, how far can we push this MCU stuff? I mean, we've talked about it on multiple uh, MCU related episodes that the moment these things stop making returns, they'll stop making them. Um, and I think by putting all of that stuff in the trailer and making it very clear who's going to be in the film, yeah. um, Is enough, will be enough. Like, I mean, we look like you said, look at the response, look how many people watch the trailer. Like, people are gonna go see this film now, and they're they're just playing it probably, you know, safe from a producing standpoint. You're a
1: thousand percent right, because you're right, it's not, yeah, it it objectively is a more popular trailer than Endgame, but that doesn't mean it's gonna make more money than Endgame simply because of the the world that we live in right now, Mm -hmm. and that this is gonna be a Fiat only release. So, yeah, it's going to be harder to pirate it, so it might not have the same drop-off as Black Widow, although you could argue that's just a quality assurance thing. Mm. But uh, either way, it's like there's still going to be people not wanting to go to the theatre in in a climate like Absolutely. this. Especially, you know, I mean, we're not going to get too political. But, I mean, the idea is, you're right, they just want bums and seats, they want that, that financial safety net, mm-hmm. and they're going to show it all off. They're going to show Tobey Maguire in the next trailer. A thousand percent, they're going to. And mm-hmm. I think that's a shame, but... The fact of the matter is, you're not going to show too look, much I mean, that people those, aren't going to watch you the look movie. look at those
0: first couple of, um, maybe look at the Force Awakens trailer when that dropped. It's like, they held off on every big reveal until yeah. the, 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 the final um, reveal. And all they really revealed was... Millennium Falcon was pretty much going to be in it, and that was pretty much all we got out of it. And Han Solo and Chewie were going to be back in yeah. it. And that was, that was, Those were
1: like the first two trailers, yeah.
0: Yeah, there wasn't like that much in it, and they you know, they really held off on that, and they didn't show any Luke in the Force Awakens trailer at all, um, at any point. Um, yeah, that was you know,
1: that was their one big secret,
0: um, which I think was fantastic. Then I don't think they showed any Carrie Fisher too. So like they they held off. They had pretty good restraint that and it paid off. Um,
1: that's a good point. Did they show Carrie Fisher? No. I have no... Yeah.
0: They only showed Hans Hall and Julian I'm pretty sure. Wow. Um, they were really yeah, good with that. Yeah,
1: that because w- that was a real... That was a legit reveal when yep. she was first on screen. Yeah, I'm only just remembering that.
0: They had a lot of restraint with that, the Force yeah. Awakens trailer. They very much kept it... You're going to see this film, and we're going to hold yeah. off on a lot of that, which is why when... I saw it in the cinema for the first time and people were cheering and really getting in on it. It's because everything was a genuine surprise at that point. Yeah. They'd, like People had gone in and the way they revealed the Falcon and the, and the way they revealed Carrie Fisher and C3, like, all of those moments were left for the, the film. Whereas, even,
1: even Endgame, even Endgame had still had a lot of secrets. We did not know that there was going to be a time jump in the first 10 minutes of the yeah. film. We knew nothing about it. And that just speaks to Disney, you're right, they're more cautious now. Yeah. We need to show more. We need to get bums and seats because mm-hmm. we need to show all the stuff. And they can show as much as they want. It's not going to stop people from going. If they show every single shot of Tobey Maguire in the trailer and there's nothing new for the film left, that's not going to sell less tickets. Yeah. It's not. So they could and they might. I don't I mean, think they literally will. But you know what I mean. Like They're going to show as much as they need to to make sure. that money. So I mean, that's the shame of it all. But I'm still very excited for this film for just from a nostalgic point of view i don't even know how i didn't think far from home was that great you
0: know I had a lot of problems with it so um, i'm not look, excited for this I, i'm hoping it's not going to, i'm hoping it's going to have a, conhe- a case of story mm. um i think this could very easily get quite messy and become quite just fan servicey right like and by that i mean it's you know and it's not like they're not capable i mean we take that spider verse film which is which is so widely and positively received there's a big ensemble cast in that. in that, So, you know, there's what, six or seven different Spider-Man in, in the Spider-Verse yeah. film and they still land it pretty well. But that's because the story is quite concentrated and I hope that there's a lot that needs to get done in this film to get everyone where they need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I hope it just doesn't turn into oh well. This is the stuff from the Raimi films, and this is the stuff from the Amazing Spider-Man films. Right,
1: that it still feels like a narrative that makes sense. Like yeah, like that
0: the, where we're just going on a tour of all of the the old MCU films. Yeah, Because um, yeah. it could quite easily fall into that That's trap. That's true. That is very true. A um, the theme park tour. Yeah, which is yeah. pretty much, I mean, arguably, that's pretty much what Force Awakens is for a lot of people. It's a, mm. it's a collection of all of the, the old uh, the old safe things that made you feel good cool about yourself. And I would argue, <laughs> more importantly, not so much Force Awakens, but Rise of Skywalker, that was what led to its demise, was its uh, inability to innovate on past um, yeah. artifacts of the time. And So th- that'll be intriguing. Um, whether... Th- how these like these you know these alfred Molino's doc octopus will actually integrate into the plot yeah. be very interesting if they or are they just sightseeing moments where it's like look <laughs> you remember doc ock he had his whole movie you know yeah yeah this is his moment and there's willem dafoe and yeah no, have...
1: I, I agree i hope it doesn't fall into that trap
0: yeah but, where yeah. it's because you know i haven't played that video game but i've heard that's a really good depiction that story in the first oh the PS4 yeah
1: version yeah that's a great story
0: yeah yeah so interesting you know it's an interesting just conversation point um I like I said the response has been crazy mm. um, so we will watch and wait we and, shall we uh, shall I mean, we're gonna be talking about Shang Chi in a couple of weeks let's be real. <laughs> um, we are it's inevitable it's yeah
1: it's inevitable like it's you know if, I if Black Widow s- gets
0: an episode surely Shang-Chi gets an episode
1: yeah yeah we'll see we'll see I have
0: absolutely no expectations one way or the other for it which might mean you might be pleasantly surprised if you Maybe. We'll go see. in rock bottom we'll see
1: I've actually been spoiled a big cameo in that film but luckily I don't care so cool I really don't care
0: <laughs> no dramas well let's move into career stuff I'm sure you've got a bit to talk about there yeah
1: so I was on a set for the first time in several months. Wowzers. Which, wowzers, which is very nice. So it was my friend Andy Newcomb. His PhD short film called Chapman Station, which got titled very late in the process. I actually like the title because station, station is used almost very metaphorically, which I like. It's not a literal station. Sure. Um, I won't say too much because obviously it's his place for it, but it's essentially a film about uh, a legacy of a family of farmers and about, you know letting the son leave the nest and go on his own journey or continue the legacy of the family of farmers like that kind of internal struggle. But it also has a lot to say about the farming um, sort of community or or the more down South community. We shot this near and around Harvey, for example, and about, you know, post bushfire scenarios and how the communities come together to deal with that. And, uh, my role was primarily to just do the behind-the-scenes again, which is something I've been specializing in, it seems. The behind-the-scenes specialist. Yeah. I actually had a friend that
0: said, like... You Jake, know, in all seriousness, mm. though, there's probably a, a career business in business. Yeah, that,
1: yeah. Know? My mate was just saying, you, know, you could probably do a business in it. And, and I was saying, like, yeah, if I charge just enough that it's affordable for, like, these local short films, because there's not a lot of money involved in, in any of this stuff locally, um, which is always something I think is a big problem. I think but. at
0: this point you've built up a resume with it
2: yeah Yeah.
1: well exactly Um, and the fact of the matter is I I wouldn't have got this job if Andy didn't see the work I'd done on my Raven BTS so it all becomes a big circle like that Um, but no it was great to be back on a set and see all the big setups and uh, what was actually cool was they got a bunch of first years on at the last second I was really surprised because they were like given essentially a day's notice to go and live down south for a few days to make this film And, and a lot of people just turned up which can't say the same for myself that I would have done that in all honesty but I appreciated the hustle they were great kids I say kids, or like maybe four years younger than me. (laughs) But it was cool because, you know, you had people like Parlo who's like a, you know, he's a bit of a veteran in the local scene and he's worked on lots of features. You know, he's sort of in the thick of it and very busy and he has great stories, but I don't think he's as personable as someone like me who sits in the corner with my little camera um, where, you know, the first years can chat with me and we could just talk about experiences and what it's like to be on sets like this. And that was really cool. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, But yeah, it was fun and it, Like, I was sick. I was so sick as a dog (laughs) for the majority of the shoot, which is probably why I was sort of fluctuating between being miserable and being happy to be there. I think that's something I just need to work on, is it's always easy to get negative on a set of, oh, we're going over time, and Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, this and that, I'm not getting paid enough, this, blah, 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 blah. It's like, I think I need to just take a step back and work on myself with that one, just to enjoy the experience more, Um, especially because it was a pretty low-key... I wasn't getting asked to do much on that set. I was just in my own world doing my own video in the corner. Um, that's always a pet peeve is when they ask you to do something that <laughs> that's not your job. That really drives me nuts. But um, no, I was left alone on the set, which was nice. Nice. Um, yeah, what do you Think of Harvey. <laughs> Harvey. Oh, it's oh, dude, it's so nice because um, was, were we were in um, Waruna for a lot of it. That's actually where we stayed in like a little hotel area. So I had my own little tiny room and my little tiny TV. I'd watch. Um, you know what I watched, like, 2, 3 in the morning when I'm going to sleep? I had the... um, It wasn't the pawn shop stuff, but it was, like, a similar show. There was one where like they... The Storage Wars? Something like that, yeah. And they had one for people who'd build treehouses, but, like, really fancy. Oh, yeah. Like, treehouses that are bigger than our yeah, houses. Yeah, like
0: tiny houses and the tree... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
1: and there was one where they were doing, like, a drag race or comparing, like, the engines of their cars and stuff. Like, that kind of crap, you know, that I just... I love. I love watching yeah. that stuff. Um, it's so manipulated. I love the editing as well on that, because... Like when they cut back to people's reactions, they will cut back to like the same two seconds five times, mm. <laughs> just to drag the tension drag out. Drag, but I love it. I love it so much. So, um, that's the kind of stuff I would have on there. But yeah, Raruna, uh, Harvey. I love. I love driving down there. It's the best because there's no one there, no nothing. I mean, I did. I did get fined, or I should say, done on the way down there. Really? Yeah, I got. So here's the thing. I saw the car. Like 100 miles out. I was like, I, I just know it. I know that's a speeding camera. I was going 180. So I was slowly going down to 80, slowly going down. Get to about 82 when it flashes me. I'm like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> so 82, 80, I think I'm fine. I think they're not going to find me for that. But um, once you're actually in the city, mm. that's a fun place to drive because it's just like, there's nothing. It's the, it's the
0: best. Dramas. Well, it's good to hear you on a set. Yeah. Having a a good time. Very nice. Be keen to see how this film turns out.
1: Yeah, I'm curious and hopefully it comes around soon and and hopefully we make the BTS something bigger. I think there was talks of making it, uh, making like a separate documentary and interviewing actual people involved in those communities and the bushfires and Mm. um, making it all a part of like one big documentary alongside the film. So That's pretty nifty. Yeah, so hopefully it goes really well. I'll keep you in the know.
0: No drama as well. It is time for us to move into our film of the week, Jake. But what are we watching?
1: This week in the show, Zeke, we're watching Annette. Annette. This is my baby. Excuse me a minute.
0: is a stand-up comedian with a fierce sense of humour who falls in love with Anne, a world-renowned opera singer. Under the spotlight, they form a passionate and glamorous couple. With the birth of their first child, a mysterious little girl with an exceptional destiny, their lives are turned upside down. Zeke. Yes?
1: What do you think of Annette? (laughs) Uh,
0: um. Mm. So, um, as we were talking about in the first half of the show... I don't think this will make your uh, 1100 to watch before you die sort of film. Um, It'll make mine. No, it won't. It won't oh, make Oh, no. Ser- no, certainly not. <laughs> um, so, obviously, this is you know starring Adam Driver, Marion Cotillard, and Simon Helberg. Mm. And, um, yeah, this is probably my least favourite Adam Driver film I've ever Damn. watched. Damn. Um, <laughs> this was rough. I'm a big Adam Driver fan. So, this hurts.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking at now all the films that he's in. Patterson, Logan Lucky, Francis Ha, obviously Star Wars. What If? Or you call it the F word. I, mean, I, I could
0: it's- say like, Rise of Skywalker is a worse film than this one, but right. I would say this is my least favourite. Yeah. In terms of just frustrating. Just confusing, I, frustrating, baffling. Yeah. I'll,
1: look, I'll say this much because it's a fascinating film and I'm curious how deep our conversation is going to get if at all, honestly because there's a lot going on but there's also a lot of not going on if that makes any sense I'll say it is it is the cinematic rock opera you are promised when you read the log line of this film watch the trailer and all of those elements it's the one you promise for better or worse
0: <laughs> mostly worse
1: and yeah, there's a lot of elements in there That First, I'm not too familiar with, I mean, I watched Amadeus the other night, which was just such a funny little comparison Mm. to this, which, unlike that film, which is all about the authenticity of of what's going on in that story, this one's all about the absurdness and surrealism and melding, you know, unrealistic elements and creating, yeah, the rock opera, like Mm. this thing that is so... Uh, beyond what you would expect from another narrative film, yeah, uh, there's there, there, yeah, there, there's a lot of. I mean, elements
0: this is our on. first, this is our first uh, like Leo Carey film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um,
1: well, I'm not familiar with his style at all. Yeah, um, I don't know if this is consistent with the style of his other films, um, and it's hard to tell because I like, even just sort of scrolling through some of these comments here. I mean, there's a lot of people that love it. The average is 3.4, but it does seem to be quite spread. So it, I, I would say this is if more people watched it. Because I don't think there's a lot of people who even know about this film. It would be more divisive, or it is divisive. You could argue that. I reckon.
0: Yeah, I look. I I can't say I, I hated the film. I I'm very sit, much sitting on a seldom pass grade for this one. Mm. Um, because you know it was, it was it was intriguing to it. Like when you say fascinating, uh, I'm not sure. Fascinating's the right word. Intriguing's the wrong word because there were times where it was just not moving or not progressing or not really getting anywhere. Mm. And it's two hours and 20 minutes and it's easily, it's easily 30 or 35 minutes too long. Like it's Mm. at, at the mo, or at least 20 minutes too long, you know, it's, it, it just keeps going and going. And, and honestly for the first 40 to 45 minutes of the film, it, it doesn't have a lot to say. Um,
1: yeah, I think it's funny because, like, I try to... Yeah, the pacing's not great. Again, I think that's actually a victim of it being such a committed rock opera in that the way it tells story, um, even just through pacing, but also, like, the fact that um, you're not going to have those, like, standard dialogue one-on-one scenes. You're going to have a lot of sinning and uh, not necessarily dancing, but a lot of exposition in the way it's delivered. Mm. And then we even talked about those interstitial moments like the uh, the... Um How would you call it? like the news outlet oh on t n t today that this like those p- replace what would otherwise be a scene where like these characters have a conversation that lead into the next part of the plot mm. and I think the way it plays with plot is reminiscent of the fact that this film was originally meant to be like a soundtrack from the Sparks and this turned into a film through that so you can you can sense that that translation is not perfect, and i don 't think they wanted it to be perfect I think that mm. they 're playing with those elements in an interesting way. Which is why I hate to say, that I, I think the pacing's bad, and I, I don't know if it's too long. It's a long movie. You, you're kind of just like, is this going to end? Is this going to end? And people walked out. Many people walked yeah, liked, out of the uh, cinema. I mean,
0: we had a cinema of 15 people, including ourselves. Four people walked out. Two people yeah, walked just, out like, within the first 40 minutes. Another two people stuck around for about an hour to an hour and a half. Um, and they walked out. They just the two behind us and the two in front of us got, got up and walked out. And there was only about 15 of us in the cinema. And
1: And we knew it wasn't like they were going to bathroom. We knew immediately like, Oh, they're gone. Yeah. They're not coming back. Yeah.
0: There's a moment where, so I'm going to bring up, this is actually a good time to bring up my, uh, go to letterbox comment for this film. Okay. Um, this one is (laughs) going to be a weekly uh, thing. Alyssa. Yeah. I'm bringing, (laughs) I'm actually bringing this in uh, funny, funny comments with Zeke. Um, I like that. Um so this one's from Alyssa on uh Letterbox obviously. Uh dude this is going to be the center of so many awkward Tinder dates where one party takes it way more seriously than the other. <laughs> um I thought that was fantastic. So good stuff Alyssa. That made me chuckle quite quite a lot. I 100% agree with that. I could mm-hmm. totally see weird Tinder date like a Tinder date film because you're like, "Oh, it's a rock opera." And then one person's clearly more in like gets really into it, and then the other one's like, "This is weird and stupid see I uh, think
1: I just I think that's strange because even in terms of like the audience for this film and the audience like within this film, like the the constant crowds, I consider that like one singular character, and we can get into that in a minute. But in terms of this film like when you say like Tinder Day, like it's funny. But I'm like, there's no way in hell this film was made for like your young twenties couple. I like, I mean, I imagine the people that left the theater today, they were definitely of the older yeah. generation. We're probably the youngest people going yeah, in. That's and even that, normal for us. Yeah, well, exactly. And I, even they were sick of the film. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's another question: is who is this film for? Other than it's like really snobby film goers. I honestly think might it's like just like it.
0: for really snobby. This is this is probably the biggest takeaway I have from this film is there are, there is a category of film in which I just really think that the, and I call it wanky filming because there is like, there is a degree where it's kind of like art for art's sake. And it's like, I could, but I mean, and I'm probably a victim of this sometimes. I mean, I'm sure some people watch, I'm thinking of ending things and think that that's, Mm. uh, you know, in the same sort of absurdist category, like that Kaufman-esque um, yeah. over awareness, and I think that this could quite easily <laughs> fall in a very similar category. But I, I think it's what this film's trying to say, and and it 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 has it has multiple things. It has an aesthetic crisis of character. It doesn't know really what aesthetic it wants to go for. Um, it has cl- like weird, drawn out, clunky performances at times, mixed in with some really powerful moments, and um. Honestly, some of the more silent moments when the music does the speaking are some of the more potent and and better scenes, which we'll get into, you know, a little later in this review. But Mm. I think that, uh, I said that, like, it it has that crisis. And then it has, like I was saying to you, Jake, one of my biggest things with watching a musical or rock opera, because we've, you know, we've discovered a rock opera is kind of a subgenre of the musical genre. Mm. Um, Written by Todd Chavez, BoJack. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Um. It, it really, the musical numbers. Um. You're not gonna hit on all of them. Like, mm. but every musical I have watched to date, I could pick one song from, and I'd be like, "That's the song that you, you know, that's the song I remember. That's an iconic song. That's a good. That's a great musical moment." This film, I can't pick one at all. Maybe the last song, but um.
1: So I could barely even understand what the actual lack of a better word dialogue was in that in that song
0: yeah um so the rest of them were in my opinion repetitive and didn't like la- you know didn't have that sort of substance like you know you know a couple of years ago we had la la land and someone also made a joke in the letterbox, This it's just a darker version of la la land and i'm like oh i could kind of see that but there were multiple numbers in la la land original numbers i don't think They're there's really anything enjoyed. like la la land I don't, uh, well apart from the, the hollywood aesthetic maybe that's about as far as it goes, though.
1: No, well, like, that's a typical love story, and this is a tragedy, because ultimately, and this was another thing I found disappointing, is, yeah, it's about this couple and their baby and, like, the the, the gifts that they have and, yeah, and um, yeah, ultimately, uh, like, the torment... Marionette of, like, the, baby. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to get into that, aren't we? Um, you know, there's those elements there of performing and stardom and even... I like the stuff where, like, the haunting. Haunting, uh, and, and, you know, we're kind of already in spoiler territory, I imagine, but the whole thing of her haunting her husband, because of her devil, like, I love that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Even though it plays in sort of a stage play-esque way, she comes in sort of a more demonic form and presents like that stuff. I'm kind of like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. The sea hag. Yeah, the sea hag. Like, the hair's long- I mean, her hair changes are really interesting in this mm-hmm. film as well, um, even from like the, the red redhead sort of um, week that she would have in her performance and then like the short hair she typically rocks and then it goes way down. You're right, it's a sea hag thing. There's a lot of themes in there, um, but in terms of the presentation... Well, first off, in comparison to La La Land, this is a tragedy. It's not the love story that La La Land is, all about following your dreams. This is all the the horrible, nasty blackness of all of those elements. Uh, and then, in terms of whether this you know this being a rock opera, talking about how they're sinning the way that they're feeling, which is a great Futurama joke, that makes me feel angry. But you literally have scenes of them just like having sex and just like screaming over and over again, "I love you." Well, what what's the what's the term they use? Like, we're so in love. We're, we're so in love. We're as so in love.
0: Rough, as a rough song.
1: Like, but that's the thing. And it's it's the not a song. song. It's not a song. And it's like, yeah, that I think that point's valid of you walking out and being like, there's no songs that I can remember that are, like, memorable. Or good. Yeah. And, and I'm on the other end of being like, there aren't even, most of these aren't even songs, period. Yeah. Because I don't even know if that's what it's trying.
0: Well, that it's, one actually is a song because it's it's a part of the story. Right because the conductors the one who wrote that song yeah so that's not even them rock opera speaking what like dialogue speak that was an actual number because that's what rock opera is it's it's numbers and then w- instead of speaking between numbers you're you're singing yeah you' feeling so that was an actual song like the opening one's a song, that one's a song and there's a couple others and the, the one where she, um, uh, she's walking around the house. Mm. Um You got Anne. Anne. It's Henry and Anne and when then Anne's, Anne's walking around the house and she's smoking what, and Anne? taking a whiz and um like mm. I I just find I, I know what they're trying to do, like they they really are trying to ground it's very much trying to be as, as realistic um because obviously musicals have that suspension of disbelief and that weird sort of non diegetic movement and body language you know like yeah. in la la land which is a classic musical people are dancing in the middle of the street to open the the thing they're obviously not actually doing that whereas this one is actually trying to at times really just ground it in a realistic reality um and just have that performative aspect on it like her song and song when she's singing in the house and she's just doing you know chores and she's going to the bathroom mm. and she's taking a whiz and having a smoke i mean There's nothing romanticised about that or or she's actually doing that while singing. No,
1: and and, and a lot of the songs are motivated by the fact that they are performers. Like, he's doing stand-up, she's an opera singer, and then they're Mm. doing... You know, um, Annette is on stage doing her singing. It's like, a lot of those performances are motivated performances. There are crowds there watching them to perform. Yeah. Which, yeah. And and I think, back to that performance, I want to talk about the audience as well because the first five minutes of this film were very intriguing because it very much stamps what it's <clears throat> about. You have the, you know, the voice talking to the audience. All right, hold your breath. Don't make a noise. Enjoy this ride, which, you know, make what you will, but it does set the tone of, like, okay, well, we're an audience. Well, it's very
0: much an all eyes on me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: watch. And, and 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 it is a cool way to bookend the film yeah. when the last line that Anna Driver says is, like, stop looking at me. Yeah. So it's like there there is that element. It is, again, performance and audience, but... When I, I don't when think I, the
0: four people that walked out got that memo
1: <laughs> well, they, they weren't there long enough to get the memo <laughs> they're like yeah I don't care I'm I'm not watching you anymore Adam Driver um, no but the, the audience within the film uh, and again I think this is all the audience watching the stand up the audience that's clapping for Anne's performance the audience that are watching him be arrested and, and shouting and holding the signs and the audience at the halftime football game I feel like that's all like the same collective character for yeah. a lack of a better word and that they're very objective synchronised cheers and boos and laughs like all of those things I thought it was very meticulous the way I was done and when I say when it's in sync essentially like even like the the banging on the police car is like yeah. that The, the rhythmic me, rhythmically it's in sync well it,
0: it plays into Hen- Henry's ego too it's right. the it's the fact that he only, he doesn't see uh, individuals, he sees a collective, yeah. um, and you would argue all three of them, Anne, Anne, and, Anne and him, they're centerpieces for the larger um, sum of people, like, um, they're performing for the masses, but the masses don't have an identity, or their, their character is a collective hive mentality. Yeah. Um, no, it's a good way to
1: put it. It's a hive mentality. It's like it, it, it's a singular view. Mm-hmm. There's no split in the middle. It's a very binary difference between audience and performer. Yeah, and you know, it's as much as I'm making jokes at this film's expense. I, I, I totally got what they were going with that. Um, I it was interesting at the start how they have the films almost like uh, there, there seems to be these uh, not transitions, but Transparency between two different shots, especially when they're starting up the the instruments and everything, I thought that was a really I, interesting way to open the film. It was
0: interesting, but I I don't get it. Yeah, and it doesn't come back at all. No, it comes back, I think, one other time. But this is the thing: a lot of the um, editorial, um, cinematic um, tones and uh, like every had a, a very inconsistent crisis of character. There was no consistency at all with it and and that chaos it's like you know someone said it was a david lynch version of 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 la la land and or something like that well, and i don't like this la la comparison i really don't well i, I can see the david lynch part right. um that sort of almost chaotic way of of telling a story and that weird uh sort of amalgamation it's definitely something that he's done in a couple of his films but mm. um i definitely think his films also have a lot more purpose and more purpose-driven characters to defend David Lynch, as much as I'm not a big David Lynch fan, um, where I just thought that that sort of stuff was just kind of showy. And a lot of it is just feels kind of showy. Mm. Like the the scene at the centerpiece of the uh, in the middle of the film when they're, they're on a voyage. Um, on the boat, yeah. And they've made the deck clearly on a soundstage and, and there's a mixture of uh, LED wave panels in the background and... People throwing... Very Obviously, it's very much deliberately trying to look like it's in a studio. It's trying to look...
1: Yeah, it's not trying to trick you into thinking it's real. Because right. this is a stage
0: play. This right. is a stage
1: play. The whole film is, yeah.
0: But that's the thing. And it's like the things with the, the Entertainment Tonight chapter bookmarks, where they basically are bookmarking uh, and time-skipping uh, yeah. time.
1: And they look intentionally bad. you got the green screen, the flat angle. It's, it's just as weird to me. Mm.
0: It's just like... It wasn't... I kind of was sitting there, I'm like, why is... First off, this feels. It also felt completely out of place. Like these characters wouldn't watch their Entertainment Tonight stuff. I think, um, ironically, well, you know, were we, they
1: watching it back? Was that? what Well, the, no, was no one was
0: watching it. Was just there was basically just chapter bookmarks. But right. We'd assume. Right. Uh, basically, what that was is that's trans. If it was a stage play, that's the transitions between. Uh, yeah, exactly. The, that's the, the costume the change. Yeah.
1: Or on the album, that's like switch the disc two, You know. Yeah, legit. That, Yeah, that's like, that's what it is. The, if
0: you were watching that live, that would be on like a monitor, and it would play. Like I, I literally have done work on on stage plays where you right, do a well that's the what news they do. broadcast. So yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's literally the exact same thing, and and it just felt kind of out of place. And and then, I mean, we got to talk about it now. But obviously, you know, earlier into the film, we find out Anne's pregnant and Anne has this child, um, Annette, and something's not quite biologically normal about Annette. Uh, I I
1: had read somewhere earlier that it was a... It was Jesse Newell's review. I kind of skimmed it really quickly. Mm. So he gave it three stars, so he's very lukewarm, and he's a pretty generous reviewer, so... Free stars to him is, is not the greatest score. You, do, no. you don't want a free star from Jesse Newell. But he mentioned the puppet. He said the baby puppet or the child puppet. I was like, oh, okay. I <laughs> wonder what's going on here. So, so I knew ahead of time that we we're going to get a And For
0: 90, 90% of her time in this film is a, is a marionette puppet. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's... We we kind of actually I liked the conclusion we came to on our on our walk home, uh, prior to the show that um, it's definitely a perspective of Henry's perception of of Annette. Um, yeah, the
1: the reason at least the, the one that we can argue is yeah it's is that that it's a perception of a puppet that they have, they have control and don't see him as a human as a performing yeah. puppet if you will. No strings on me. So. Yeah, I know, <laughs> but
0: it's just like. Yeah, what about? I mean, Mark that's Rutter our assumption. To, we don't, we're not saying I think that's a very fair one. Though. Right. But it's also, no one can say we're wrong. I mean, that that's the whole yeah. point with these kind of films that are very openly interpretive and, hmm. you know, pardon not finding a better word, but wanky at times. Um,
1: I used it on Blade Runner, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on, and I honestly feel
0: like this is in the same category. It, it, it points as it, it, it didn't need to be a, a puppet. And then there's little things like he has a, some form of birthmark that grows. Yeah, over I noticed the course that. That's interesting. Uh, I don't know if that's a corrosion thing. Like that's the the metaphor they're going for there. Like his personality is more corrosive and corrupt, and mm. um, But that's obviously clearly there as a deliberate choice.
1: Well, this image here it's on the letterbox, the main image is them their first kiss towards the start of the film. He has no mark on there whatsoever. Yeah. So it's got it's born from scratch. In, during the and course it grows of the film,
0: and, and it becomes quite considerably large by mm. the end of the film. Um, so obviously, yeah, it's uh, it's some form of corrosive um, allegory or effect, infection and stuff, and yeah. Um, so that one seemed a bit easier, but the Annette one was obviously a little bit more subjective and open to interpretation. But I like that takeaway from from that, especially, and it, it's definitely confirmed, obviously, with the latter stages of the film when she finally becomes a real, a, a real girl. Yeah.
1: I'm a real girl.
0: Um, <laughs> but it, it was creepy. And, and that's honestly one of my first takeaways is... Yeah. God, I, it's creepy, and it must be tough to act with something like that.
1: Yeah, you got to give props to, to pretty much the whole cast to have to work with, with the, the puppet. Because, it, it, yeah, it's like... I guess that's the, the, ana- the, the analogue that I'm taking away, but I can't shake the feeling of, like, oh, was this a budget thing? Was it this thing? Is that why they did it? Like, I don't think anything... In this film is not intentional. I feel like they had the money they needed, and they they got the performances they wanted, even though, yeah I mean you were saying it as well, even just like the sinning and all of that like i'm 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 terrible at picking that stuff up telling you what sounds good, what sounds bad, whose voice is good or bad. I'm bad at this stuff, but like I can't check the feeling watching a film like this being like, I know they did it for real back in the day, and I don't know how much of this is for real quote unquote,
0: yeah, look. This is the thing, and I had the say, You know, they gave Russell Crowe a lot of crap when Hooper did his Les Mis, um, and everyone could sing really well except Russell Crowe, and they gave him a lot of crap. And I, I said, comparatively, yeah, he didn't sing. He wasn't bad singer, but compared, you know, he would have to do scenes with literally a Broadway musical actor in in a earlier you know earlier life being, um, you know, and and the fact of the matter is. I don't like I have said this with musicals if you've got actors that can't sing don't cast them cast someone else right. like put the, the the fact that especially in a rock opera most of your dialogue is going to be sung next to all of it yeah Um. and I, I just think Adam Driver's voice is quite weak in this and, and I just he just kind of was clunky at times and
1: yeah, and you know what you can compare it to he has a song in in um, in Marriage Story, yeah, he has a strap sound. He's excellent in that. Yeah, but I remember watching this. But yeah. I'm not quite sure if this is correct or not.
0: Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? Because it's such an interesting um, moment. But the, the thing in Marriage Story is that even if he doesn't sound the best, it's not the end of the world because it's a real life situation. He's in a bar performing with his friends. Right. You know, even if he didn't sound. But musicals or rock operas, you know, everyone who performs needs to have, especially when clearly a lot of the extras are musically trained, it just adds to that emphasis of, yeah, this is a bit, this just feels more out of place. And he has most of the singing for the film too. Yeah, and, for sure. Um, that makes it really hard to try and get on board with that. Um, especially with Marion um, Cotillard, is, her voice is really strong in this. Mm. Um she's doing operatic stuff she's doing operatic stuff so that's even more impressive so it really does show um and apparently none of them were trained beforehand but i mean that's that could be subjective what's what what is training i mean at the end of the day
1: well like you know you have like your voice coaches and stuff so i guess it's like they just didn't have those that's that prep time i guess to do
0: that yeah i mean i i just would have opted opted for someone that can deliver on all aspects of what the film needs. Yeah, Yeah. He's a great performer. He's one of my favourite performers of the last 10 years, but he's probably not the right person for this role.
1: Yeah, Especially when he gets
0: compared to evil Bo Burnham, and then you sit there and you're like, well, Bo Burnham can actually sing, though. (laughs) Evil Bo Burnham. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, we've already... We can say we've seen Bo Burnham can act this year, too, with Promising Young Woman at the start of the year.
1: It's interesting because... I thought about that in a, in a sense of like him doing his, the the very first performance he does, the um his comedic performance, Adam Driver's character. Mm. And there is a sense of, I mean, there's, there's a comedic style that he as a character has with, he sort of comes in and he's coughing and he's reacting to the smoke. And, you know, there's a sense of like, is he actually complaining? Is this part of the act? Like, I like that he melts with that and the audience sort of runs along with it. But there is a sense of postmodernism that we talked about when we talked about Bo Burnham's Inside, mm. and how that's using all the filmic tools and of not having an audience to make jokes, and they're sort of doing a similar thing here, except obviously it's it's a constructed narrative, quote unquote narrative film, uh, where they do have an audience and they're able to play. With the, the the boos and the hahas and yeah, the
0: you know I'm going to make you all laugh and that's a big part of the set as well. I think this is really tough with obviously you know insight coming out earlier this year and really pointing out the relationship a comedian has with the audience. Right. Um, and I think even with the fact that Bo Burnham does that whole special with not a single member of the audience, I have a better understanding of his relationship with the audience than I did with Adam Driver's performance that actually had an audience, you know? Right.
1: Like, well, it's like I the audience is a collective, mm. you know? And it's like w- we know that that same audience is the same audience as booing him when he's getting sent to jail. Yeah. It's, all the sa- it's, it's the same character yeah. in my mind, yeah. Yeah
0: i find it tough sometimes especially nowadays we have such a, a strong I, I in the last five or six years stand-up comedians as a job in film has become more prominent as one of those performative arts and mm. people have definitely gravitated to writing about them more but the the more important i think the more important thing take away, is the best people that have written that that role and that character more are the people that have actually been involved in the industry like right you know we take some of the tool you know like App, like judd apatow is probably one of the better writers of that stuff in in main funny people and stuff like that yeah because but he's also because he was a stand-up comedian so Mm. there's that empathetic understanding and i feel like the only reason he's that person in this is because that's another performative art but yeah like I didn't laugh once in his routine, and I've... Well, that's
1: why I think it's postmodern, because there's no, like, jokes in it. Not really. There's, like, sort of jokes, but again, they're they're very... People laugh,
0: like, people laugh in the film, and... Yeah, well, it's
1: it's like a likability thing, Mm. you know? It's like, okay, this audience, this character, the audience, singular, likes him, and then when he goes on about murdering his wife, which, I guess, at that time is fake, that's, like, him imagining it when he's tickling Mm -hmm. her... The audience doesn't like him. It's very binary, I think. I think that's what that's trying to be. I don't sure. think he's actually telling like joke jokes. Or that we're meant to necessarily laugh at any of those jokes. Mm. That was I agree, that I was that. I I about 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 that. That. that's fair. Well that that's a perfect segue into you were talking about off the show the dream sequence of like the six women coming out um and of course, that's Anne's dream sequence. Just, just hit hit me with that. Hit me with that sequence. Oh, uh,
0: I mean, it comes seemingly a little bit out of nowhere, and mm. obviously, at this point, um, to our knowledge, Henry hasn't done anything that drastic. He has had, you know, he he seems to be spiraling a little bit, but not like excessively. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect between him and Anne um but nothing too overt at this point and she's you know she's riding from i i'd like a, to a show i assume they don't really emphasize and she yeah falls she a,
1: says to wake me up before we get there so
0: yeah she falls asleep to a news channel looking at the the wildfires in california and goes into this dream sequence of six women coming out in a in a sort of a me too press conference about how th- their discrepancies against uh that henry has you know done to them and mm um It seems to be, you know, we don't know at the time it was a dream sequence when we go into the scene. So we're feeling like, oh, is this a part of the plot? Is, is these women coming out, and he's actually not all these cracked up to be, right? Of course, it ends in this number, and a lot of people accusing these women. Why is it taking them so long to speak up? And then Anne wakes up like it's an episode of like, McLeod's Daughters or something like that, <laughs> like or Dallas. <laughs> it's really all a dream. Slow. um Yeah, yeah. Look, I've, and it- then the the plot continues. Yeah, and I... then Henry doesn't do anything that bad for like another twenty five minutes and then he doesn't actually kill Anne. Anne falls off the boat and he doesn't try and save her. Like he doesn't push her off the boat. Um I think that
1: Right. Well he kind of admits to killing her though later yeah, on yeah but it wasn't
0: as malicious as what he did with um, right
1: with con- Simon's con- character or Simon Helberg we should say the conductor the conductor credited. yes yeah look I think because that, that's what, where I was going as well I was like oh this could be a cool turn now where we do find because it is sort of you know, it's a surprise like oh shit there's something wrong yeah. with Henry or what's going on and I guess that sort of alludes to this idea that you can always sense this impending danger. But what's interesting, I told you this, I think this is kind of messed up. If this is the intention, I don't know if it was because you have the big reveal when they're, they're basically um, whoring out Annette as like a performer. And she finally uses this moment of silence and with the popularity, all eyes are on her when she's like, my dad's a killer. And she reveals that information And it's like, is that meant to be some sort of twisted connection to the six women in the Me Too movie and how they're accused of waiting too long? Why didn't you do it sooner? Why didn't you do it sooner? Versus the baby waiting until there's an audience to tell them. And it's like, maybe that's what it's trying to say, is Mm. waiting until they have the audience to do that. that,
0: uh, And I mean, that's really bad, if that is actually what the sort of cause and effect was. The other really thing is, to that point, Ann and... Henry have had a really healthy relationship. Like we haven't seen anything negative from their relationship. He's never forced himself onto her. Um, Like he he hasn't done anything in in our um obviously in our subjective discourse. So Mm. what we're we are you know we were told to shut up and watch, and we're watching. And Mm. at this point, all Henry's done is he's a bit of a tool. He's a bit of a narcissist, and they're both but they're both performers. But the funny, th- the funny thing with, uh, they're, and they're looking for adulation. But that that's all we really have from their relation, and they're and they've had a child, and there's a bit of a you know there's a bit of a disconnect of responsibility there. But uh, it was a very out of nowhere scene that I don't think ever gets its dividends because, hmm. well, Anne gets killed off at the midpoint.
1: Yeah, that yeah, that's pretty much is the midpoint of the story. Um, yeah, I'd buy that. Yeah, no, I, I can't argue that at all. I really it, can't. Then it just it's, keeps trucking on. You know, I I might have actually convinced myself out of the argument that they're actually criticizing the women who wait too long to make those accusations because I think it's about finding that audience. I think that's what Annette does, the baby Annette, in terms of finding the audience and then announcing that. I'm I'm actually starting to lean back. I don't think that's an attack on women in any way. I thought it was for a minute, and I was like, that's really messed up.
0: It just felt like a scene but- that... I- For the context of it because the only other scene we kind of see Henry's obsessive nature with women and stuff Mm. comes at a partying scene far later into the film like in the last 20 or 30 minutes of the film well long after
1: his wife has died
0: died and he's at the clubs now if we had seen that scene earlier while she was still alive then we might be like oh maybe he's a bit of a seed a seeds bag you know right but to that point that's the only time we see that and it's more he's just living the rock star lifestyle and like you said um, using Annette to kind of keep his money, income coming in, and popularity, and and such. So, very inconsistent, very confusing. Not really sure what they were trying to go for with that. And it's like everything. I, everything in this film is obviously deliberate choices. We're not ever going to say if it was accidental or a budgetary restriction, because right. Um, there are things that obviously look budgetary, like the the bef- the performance in which Annette's doing in the Super Bowl stadium is very. Rough looking, did like in terms of CGI, like right, the, yeah, it's rough, but I'm never going to condone it for that. That is a budgetary restriction, that's not an aesthetic thing. But things like the crappy Greenstein stuff, that's deliberate, yeah. Um, there was a lot of footage of showing the bushfire coverage. I'm not really sure what the wildfires on the TVs and stuff, I'm not really sure what the connection yeah that
1: is interesting
0: i mean there are literal moments where anne's watched like before she falls asleep into that thing it's it's very overtly there so i'm not really sure what that was all about um it's you know it's it's like everything it's uh, she she's like annette sings in the moonlight and stuff like mm. that first and
1: i feel like that stuff like, I understand, like, the bushfire allegory. Like, I don't really get that either. I'm not going to lie. But I think the stuff with Vanette singing in the moonlight, I think that's all part of this sort of the ghosting effect. Well, I'm pretty sure she doesn't sing until her mum dies, and that that's yeah. very likely motivated. It's almost like the ghost I, of Anne yeah. controlling this child. I think that's sort of where it was... Which is Coming why the from... conductor,
0: when he teaches her that song and mm. she starts playing it, that's why it haunts him that little bit more because he never actually atones for all that stuff.
1: Yeah. I wish there were more into that, the haunting aspect. Even when she's, like, sort of in this transparent well, state in died, bed. I
0: Anne should have died a lot earlier. Um,
1: yeah, you know what? I kind of agree. Um, if it's going to be all about um drivers, like, pain and, and deterioration, then, then don't pitch it as, like, a couple film and then kill her at the midpoint. Do it earlier. I kind of agree with that.
0: Like, post that we're in love with each other song and the baby, and baby Annette's born, it's like, she's kind of... Anne's character actually has literally no dimensions outside of... She really, unfortunately, the way she's been written in this film, she really is just a vessel for his plot and Annette's plot. Like, she is the... Which uh, is very disappointing. She is the... Because we don't find out her relationship with the conductor until it's kind of ham-shut into a scene far later in the film because he is kind of also taken away from the majority of the film. He gives yeah. a small introductory scene and then gets reintroduced.
1: He's got a promotion. He's, He's got now a prom- the conductor. Because,
0: yeah. you know, we've just lost Anne and we now need to introduce someone new to the plot, you know, who's going to fuel. Whereas if he was a bit more of an integral piece earlier on and a little bit more involved in their lives, then we could care about him a little bit more mm. because uh, that was why it was so confusing. It's like... He gets his small introductory scene, and then we don't see him for nearly an hour in the film. He comes back, and he's got a promotion. He conveniently has exactly the... I mean, he always wanted to be a conductor, but he got the job exactly what Henry now needs him for the plot. And it really Mm. feels like the whole plot does revolve around the character of Henry. And that's kind of why it's like, that's fine, but then they do give a lot of screen time to... To Anne and and and- and her haunting stuff is easily way more her she's way more effective and potent in the second half of the film than she is in the first half of the film, yeah,
1: I kind of love your earlier comparison to I'm thinking of anything not only just stylistically but the fact that in that film, I was also sort of disappointed to learn like, oh it's just about the guy, like it's not and anything, but, yeah, yeah it's just, it's just about the dude and so I kind of wish there was more of her in it or as a couple in general. That, yeah, well, I like that, that though sad.
0: because I thought they gave everyone time and development there.
1: Yeah, um. yeah, they did. I, I was just, I was expecting something more than that. I just, I, I, I'm always so like not picky, but I noticed that I was like, oh, it's just about a guy and his demons. I've seen that before, you know. I just, yeah, it's just a little disappointing when that, and the exact same thing. If I'm thinking of anything. So, I mean, that's a great film. That's probably a much better film than this film. Mm. But um, that was something I took away. The only other film I want to compare it to, I guess, before. How we do our highlight scenes, um, if you have any.
0: <laughs> I got one.
1: Um, okay, cool. I got. I, I definitely have one too. Um, is Dogville, in all honesty. And I said to you off the show, and I think with Dogville, it kind of goes in the complete opposite direction of here's a film where everything's so stripped back. It's literally just an empty soundstage, and they've drawn chalk on the floor, like little squares, to represent like the different houses and buildings in the town of, of, of Dogville, of the village, I guess. Um, and then it's his performance. And then you just have performers performing for three hours. And it's like that, that's sort of the opposite end of this film where it feels like there's a lot more being piled on top of um, the performances and, and all of those mm. elements of storytelling. I just, it reminded me of that in terms of how many filmic elements you actually want to use to tell the story. For sure. Because you have a toolbox as a filmmaker and you could use that toolbox really well with a lot of diversity. But the thing I don't say is that you don't have to use all
0: of them. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent agree. So, it's interesting. No dramas. Well, it's time for us to move into highlight scenes. Jake, hit me up with your highlight scene. Um, it's funny
1: because we've virtually just talked about it. My highlight scene is the rotating camera. Oh, it's my highlight. Oh uh, there. <laughs> there you go. I guess it's yeah. I guess that's it. Subjectively, the best scene of the film is. When, uh, first off, he's Simon Helberg is acting his ass off. I think he's so good in that, in that shot. I think he's really good. And, and that's what, yeah. I'm
0: disappointed. I actually think he's not given enough time. Right. Because his character does have really good depth. Like he had a relationship with Anne the week, up, up until the week before that she met Henry. Like yeah. he has a big claim. And then in the, the latter stages before his demise, um, he claims Annette's his daughter.
1: Yeah. I think it's a lie by the way. I think he's straight up lying about that. Just to kind of get
0: to Henry.
1: True. Because there is a line in the last scene where he's like, you are my daughter after all. And, like, I believe that's like a final nail in the coffin. No, Henry's her, her dad, rather. So I think well, he's lying just to get to him.
0: I guess it's... um Yeah, be in, it'd be intriguing because we don't actually know how long they're, that they're dating by the time the film starts. So mm. that is a intriguing um but yeah it probably was just to get a rise out but it's more like he definitely became a surrogate father oh to, a thousand percent there. yeah um and a better father so it, it just comes back to I, I think his performance in it is really really good um, Yeah, he's the great. whole way through and i just wish we'd got more of him because he he's quite intricate to the plot and his small little hi i'm this character and then his reintroduction that spinning the spinning uh Mm. it's fantastic yeah it's awesome and why i like that scene is he's predominantly talking obviously he's doing it in a rock opera sense but yeah it's the pauses while the orchestra's Mm. playing and it's honestly it's more about the music in that scene that diegetic music yeah well Um, it's
1: his it's his emotion coming out
0: in the music it's fantastic yeah that's a great scene that's that is the best easily the best scene in the film and one example of using those tools to benefit the genre, benefit the story, forward the story, you know? You've now given us a character with an interesting motive and an interesting stake in the story, which is more than I can say for Anne, unfortunately. Because right. she has some of the best musical numbers in her, too, and one of the best performances. However, a character is really just there to enable Henry, and that's such a shame. Yeah.
1: Now... Oh. No dramas. Well, Annette (laughs)
0: is currently out in cinemas near you or on Amazon Prime in the US. Bastards.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They stole it. They stole it from us, Zeke.
0: Well, speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week?
1: Uh, A bit of a more breezy week this week, Zeke. If you want to go on the Netflix, you have films like Doolittle and Cats. Those are dropping a little bit of a theme there, if you don't notice. Um, Also, Afterlife of the Party... Uh, which sees a social butterfly who, upon dying on her birthday week, is given a second chance to write the Rons on Earth, or her Rons on Earth, I should say. Um, so, yeah, it seems like a bit of a play on Fairy Godmother's story. I'm not too sure, to be honest. On stand this week, you've got School of Rock, What to Expect When You're Expecting, the 2012 film, and the original Wonder Woman, which is much better than 1984. So if you want to jump on that, you most certainly can. Coming to Disney Plus this week is Happier Than Ever, A Love Letter to Los Angeles, which is the new cinematic concert experience for Billie Eilish, which is based on her new album, which is also called Happier Than Ever. Also, you've got films like X-Men Dark Phoenix and Tomorrowland, which drop on Disney Plus. Uh, coming to Prime is an exclusive, their version, the 2021 version of Cinderella. Uh, the titular character is played by Camila Cabello uh, in what seems like a more modern, musically focused take on the original story. So, for example, the fairy godmother is a fabulous black man, and uh, there's a lot of self-referential jokes about, like, the glass slippers being uncomfortable, and even magic can't make that comfortable. So, like, a lot of self-referential storytelling in the trailer. That, um, it doesn't look that great, to be honest, but, hey, it's out there. Uh, come into cinemas, you have The Burrowville Murders, uh, which is a documentary that covers the 30-year battle waged by the families of three Aboriginal children, who were murdered in a small rural town in the early nineties, and the system that failed them. You have Joe Bell, which is a retelling of the real life story about a father who's played by Mark Wahlberg, who embarks on a journey across America to talk about the terrifying cost of bullying after his gay son commits suicide. We saw the trailer for this. And uh you you vibing it at all or Yeah. Mm. No. <laughs> not no, not so much. Not really.
0: To be honest, it's got a very um like shrug oscar baby stuff right no um, that's fair enough I, I i'm i definitely... not a big mark Wahlberg fan too so it's, it's a tough sell sometimes
1: yeah it's him in a pretty serious matt i swear this should be just matt damon doing this role <laughs> feels like a matt damon role, doesn't it <laughs> kind of does uh, summer of soul or when the revolution could not be televised covers six weeks during the summer of 1969 as thousands of people attend the harlem cultural festival to celebrate black history, culture, music, and fashion. Just a cool little docker coming out. Uh, And lastly, if you're keen on the Marvel stuff, we just talked about it, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings has preview screenings from Wednesday the 1st. So uh, if you're keen on getting those preview screenings at Hoyts, this is your week. Um, But yeah, there is one other film coming to cinemas, Mm. and uh, there's I think we elected it to be our next film.
0: Yes. so next week on the show, we're going to be doing... um... Uh, another new film in cinemas but Jake Mm. what are we watching next week in the show Zeke we're watching
1: Streamline
2: this is the biggest meat of your life I will not let you lose focus you leave what's going
0: on at home at home I'm making the Olympic thing this year
1: then
0: what? I'm an Olympian.
1: And all your problems go away?
2: This is your dream. Don't let him ruin it for you.
0: This is your life, Benjamin. Why do you let him get inside your head?
2: Do you remember what he did to us?
1: 15-year-old swimming prodigy self-destructs after his toxic father is released from jail um so this is a film that's screened at the melbourne international film festival and just recently down south at the Cinefest oz festival which gotta say when i went on set the other week didn't, didn't realize how many people were like we're gonna stay down here and go to the festival i'm like i'm going up back home to work <laughs> here hey we be, go jake hey, maybe
0: next year it's a time of year Australian film. Mm. Is it going to take... Are we going to get another Australian film taking out a Golden Chalk top Award?
1: Yeah, you know what? It wasn't... It was barely just a year ago when we saw Baby Teeth for the first mm-hmm. time. So, this could be it, Zeke. This could, this be, could be, be...
0: I'm very excited. I'm not going to lie. Top. I made a joke after we went out of the Annette screening. The highlight scene was watching the Streamline trailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, good. But, it, it, look, to be honest, it was a really good trailer. Like, a, um... Love, love seeing that these Australian films are getting quick turned around straight into cinemas mm. um, off the back of festivals. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, really looking forward to this. This is sort of, I feel like a film like this was a long time coming. With um, okay, a, definitely in the last two or three years, the evolution of of sort of discussing the the toxic just Olympic swimming culture that comes out with these youths is. It is definitely sort of intriguing. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk about the mistreatments and sort of the psychological torment that some of these kids have actually had to go through in order to achieve their sort of Olympic goals. Yeah, um, and I think Athlete A is a great doco. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, that explores more of the the sexual scandals and such with that. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm literally talking about the more pursuit for physical great like like that. Greatness. Uh, per- perennial pressure. Ah, mm. oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. Adolescent teens and, and sort of the abuse that they receive via parents and coaches, people of senior stature, which is obviously uh, inconsolable and terrible. But um, hopefully this film does address some of that. If not, we'll get a couple films like that in preceding years. I know Ian Thorpe is EPing this, which mm. that's definitely raised my eyebrows. And it looks like it's got a lot of claim from first time feature director so that's fascinating but
1: both eyebrows Zeke or just raising one eyebrow
0: um maybe two we'll start with one right. um two eyebrows up yeah no worries (laughs) but until then thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sire podcast I was Zeke I was Jake we'll catch you next week with Streamline